0: Welcome to a citations needed news brief. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. We do these news briefs in between our regularly scheduled episode and thank you for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about, I don't know Adam, the rail strike and the Biden administration's response to this. Biden, incidentally, uh, the so-called most pro-labor president that we've had and we have with us on today's news brief, Two illustrious guests, none better to talk to about this. We are joined by Mel Bure, researcher, educator, journalist, and an editor at The Real News Network. Mel is currently writing a book on radical media for Or Books. And we are also joined by friend of the show and frequent guest, our, I don't know, dare I say, uh, potentially senior labor correspondent, Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, a former editor at The Chronicle Review and host of the Working People podcast. His book, The Work of Living, was published by Or Books earlier just this year. Mel and Max, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks so much for having us, guys. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. I want to sort of begin by uh, recording this on the evening of Tuesday, November 29th. So some of this may be slightly out of date, just one little qualifier there. But as it stands now, can you guys give us a sense, if you could, just kind of lay the groundwork of what happened? You don't need to get into too much weeds, but sort of explain how the negotiations took place over the summer and fall, what the union members voted on, and what the Biden administration is doing In concert with both Republicans and Democrats in concert to effectively intervene in this labor dispute on behalf of management. Can you kind of lay the groundwork before we start for those who may not be familiar?
1: Uh, Just for, I guess the context, we can just kind of do a brief overview of what happened over the summer. How do we do this? I mean, this has been a knockdown drag out contract fight that's been happening over the last almost three years now. The rail workers have been working without a contract since 2020. Negotiations fits and starts for the last two years and then came to a head this summer when negotiations came to an impasse and sort of the provisions of the Railway Labor Act, which govern how these contracts are implemented and what happens when you have stalemates like we had this summer, sort of kicked into place. And in terms of like the sort of boxes that were checked A mediation board said that they could not break this stalemate. It went to the president's office who appointed a presidential emergency board to hear both sides of this contract fight between the rail carriers of these class one freight railroads who run millions of dollars in freight every year, and 12 separate unions who all kind of fill in specific positions, both on the trains and on the railroads themselves. And uh, they heard both sides. They put some recommendations together. The rail unions unilaterally rejected most of them. And then it came to, we almost had a rail shutdown in September. We were, I think we were literally at the 11th hour, I think we were maybe 12 hours away from the deadline, when Labor Secretary Marty Walsh stepped in and pushed the two sides back to the table and they came together with a tentative agreement that then went back to the unions for ratification. Eight of the 12 unions ratified this agreement and four did not and that sort of sent people back to the bargaining table just in the last couple of weeks. Max can kind of give you a really good overview of the conditions on the railroads and what really was at stake in terms of what they were talking about at the table and why this is so important.
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, I was joking with you guys before we hit the recording button that, you know, please stop me if need be, because I feel like anyone who's heard me or Mel talk about the crisis on the nation's freight rail system, which we've been covering extensively at the Real News all year, even though mainstream media has only taken an interest in it when we are literally at the precipice of a potential rail shutdown. But every time that Mel and I have come on a show or done a live stream or anything like that, I feel like I just start and Mel just starts like spewing a bunch of railroad facts because there's so much context to understand here, which the corporate media does not give. And Mel and I are trying to give in, you know, a sort of spark notes version. So just to kind of pick up on what Mel was saying, the main thing that everyone listening to this needs to understand, if you don't already, is that. Labor relations on the railroads are not governed by the National Labor Relations Act like most jobs are. They are, in fact, governed by the Railway Labor Act, as Mel mentioned, a statute, a system of laws that was essentially put in place in the 1920s after decades of seismic railroad strikes in this country that showed the capitalist class just how much power workers on the railroads have to bring the economy down to its knees, which they did in the late 1870s. There was the Pullman strike. There was the great strike in the early 20th century as well. So that is why we have the Railway Labor Act. That is why Mel is walking through like this Rube Goldberg system of stages that these negotiations have to go through before a strike initiated by the 12 unions representing workers on the freight railroad system or a lockout initiated by the rail carriers i.e. the companies that own the class 1 freight rails all of the things that Mel described are baked into the railway labor act right so if the negotiations do reach an impasse that's when you get the federal mediation board the federal mediation board couldn't get the two sides to agree so it officially declared an impasse that's when the next thing kicks in the presidential emergency board that she mentioned that Biden appointed they assessed the two sides proposals in the contract negotiations they offered their recommendations for a framework for a brokered agreement in August the rail carriers immediately enthusiastically endorsed that report those recommendations so that should tell you a little bit about what was in those recommendations and the rail unions had lots of misgivings so that triggered a third 30-day cooling-off period. There have been a lot of these quote-unquote cooling-off periods. These are also provisions baked into the Railway Labor Act that are meant to do what they sound like, get people to kind of cool off, to break the sort of built-up frustration and momentum, to try to give people a chance to come back to the bargaining table, make some concessions, yada, yada, yada. So the strike-slash-lockout Cliff that we were approaching in September was the official end of the 30 day cooling off period after Biden's presidential emergency board officially released its recommendations in August. Then, as Mel said, a number of the craft unions. Of course, we know that the railroads are a very complex system. It's not just engineers and conductors who make up the entire railroad labor force. There are a lot of different types of workers doing a lot of essential work. There are signalmen, there are machinists working in the yard, the machine yard, repairing engines and so on and stuff like that. There are dispatchers, right, who are, you know, communicating with the folks on the train, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different people people who work on the railroads. And there is a whole sort of bizarre craft union system where you have 12 separate unions. And if any one of them in a situation like this rejects the tentative of a contract tentative agreement, and decides to go on strike, that could in effect trigger a national rail shutdown because the other unions have provisions in their contracts to not cross the picket line. So it's really a if one goes, we all go kind of thing, and that's the process that we've been in in the past couple months, where unions have been taking the deal that was hashed out behind closed doors by you know Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, the rail carriers, the rail union leadership, not the rail union membership. That was in September. A number of the unions voted it down and so there was like an extension of negotiation periods, like basically to get past the midterms. We all know what the purpose of that was because a rail shutdown would look very bad for, you know, Democrats going into the midterms, yada, yada, yada. So the deadline we were approaching, the December 9th deadline, would have been the end of that kind of, you know, extended negotiation period. And now the news that everyone's talking about this week is that President Joe Biden, the quote unquote most pro union president you're ever going to. See in American
0: history. And a railroad rider himself.
3: And a ra- <laughs> exactly. Frequent railroad rider Joseph Biden <laughs> has come out and said, now that the unions have finally, the union membership, the rank and file who have the final say or should have the final say on all of this, now that they have finally had their say and a critical mass of them representing a majority of workers of the like hundred and, you know, 15,000 or so workers involved in this mess, a majority of them have voted this tentative agreement down. They finally had their say. Then Joseph Biden comes in and says, shut the fuck up. I'm going to tell Congress to issue a back to work order and essentially ram a deal down your throats. This has all been one big show to make you feel like you have a voice. But we were pulling the strings all along. And as we speak right now on Tuesday, November 29th, it looks like that is what Congress is going to do. The only question is, are they going to try to shoehorn in some additional provisions to give these poor workers? some fucking paid sick days? Are they at least going to get that? Or are they just going to ram through the deal that was reached behind closed doors in September?
2: So we'll get to the congressional, for want of a better term, psyops in a second that Democrats appear to be running later. And I want to sort of break this conversation into three parts. First part, which you've just sort of began touching on, which is the Biden and Pelosi's role in taking the side of capital. And then the second part is the media coverage of that. Now, people are almost all the headlines and all the sort of lead lines, with some exceptions like Democracy Now! and The Real News, which can be found at finer websites everywhere, are framing this as what it ought to be framed as, which is Biden, Pelosi, Democrats, and Republicans, which is, I think, what it's going to end up being, are intervening on the side of capital to force workers to work against the terms that they themselves voted on, which, again, as you mentioned, why have a vote if the vote's just going to be nullified anyway, right? It's the definition of a Potemkin democracy. But they're framing it as Biden and congressional Democrats are attempting to, quote-unquote, avert or prevent a strike. This is kind of – this. it's really kind of officer-involved shooting language where it sort of sounds benign because it seems like Biden just got the, you know, daddy warbucks with the monocle in a room with Joe's rail worker and they sat down and they hashed out their differences and they came to terms. That's not at all what's happening.
0: They're going to prevent the bad thing from happening, which – Makes him the good guy.
1: They headed it off, yeah. They headed it off at the
0: past, right? Right, headed it off is a good one too. Uh, Secretary of
2: Transportation Pete Buttigieg Walsh, the White House's own language, keeps using this uh, language of, we're going to support the tentative agreement that was negotiated in good faith. But as you note, this was prior to the actual vote. These are democratic processes. And of course, if you just sort of ignore the vote,
0: Again, why have one in the first place? And to that point, I think, Adam, let's just let's just read some of these actual headlines so we can really talk about them. NBC News said Biden urges Congress to pass legislation to avert nationwide rail strike. You had Reuters saying U.S. House to vote Wednesday to block rail strike. You had The Guardian saying, quote, Congress to take up bill to avert Rail strike as Biden and unions clash. Ooh, they're clashing. That's a good one. That gets back to our clashing episodes. And then, of course, you have the New York Times chiming in with, quote, congressional leaders say they will act to prevent rail strike. Now, Block is
2: slightly more accurate because it at least shows that they're preventing workers from exercising their legal sort of moral duty to withhold labor, but... Even that sort of has this very kind of responsibility flattening element to it, that this is actually an intervention on the side of management. Can you comment on that framing and how it's kind of all happened so fast? It seems like there isn't really a lot of pushback on this idea that this is some anodyne negotiated settlement that the union leaders agreed to.
1: Well, I think the more accurate framing, right, is uh, they intervened to break the strike preemptively ahead of the strike deadline. Didn't even really let them get it off the ground. Right. It's particularly interesting because, you know, media has a very short memory And the Biden administration took a victory lap after they pushed through this tentative agreement and got both sides to agree to send it back to their membership. Um, This was this huge win to avert the strike, the potential of a shutdown back in September. So we're seeing a lot of the same language in its framing. And of course, just like last time, as Max and I both commented on, on the various interviews that we did with a lot of folks who suddenly cared, it's about this sort of economic issues at play here, you know, billions of dollars will be lost. The economy will be crippled.
0: It's also a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story.
1: Right. Just ahead of Christmas. This is, you know, you're going to lose out on fuel and grain's going to rot in the silos and all of these things, right? It's completely devoid of the humanity behind The supply chain that keeps the supply chain running is completely devoid of any sort of human element about what the workforce is going through and if it's even mentioned at all it takes to the bottom of most of these articles to draw attention to the issues at play and the reasons why we got to this place in the first place and it's all this deliberate framing that completely removes the human element creates this space where the Biden administration is coming in, sliding in at the last minute to, you know, take yet another victory lap saying, you know, we are doing this because the economy is going to be fucked. And look at us, we're saving the day. And it sucks because, I sent Adam this sort of master cut of CNN coverage today. Do
2: you want to listen to that real quick and respond to it?
1: Yeah, I would love to.
3: Just a warning to listeners, you're going to get very mad.
0: (laughs) Yes, this was actually put together and tweeted out by Steve Morris, senior political reporter at The Recount. Uh, Let's hear this nightmare now. A rail strike is one of the most disruptive and expensive things that can happen to an economy.
1: A rail shutdown or strike would disrupt supply chains. A
0: strike means food prices could skyrocket.
1: Many experts are saying would be an economic catastrophe.
3: That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. Even gas prices could increase. And
1: it also could cost the economy a billion dollars within the first week. That would cripple the economy.
3: I'm not setting aside the concerns of your members, but are you and your members willing to stop the rail? in effect uh, and and accept those costs to the US economy
0: do you believe a strike is worth
1: it if it cripples the US economy and costs up to two billion dollars a day more than two
3: billion dollars per day
1: is it worth it and on top of all of that the
3: holidays are right around the corner So a little less than a month right before Christmas here
1: especially right before the
2: holidays President Biden warning if that happened it would devastate the economy if we had a strike like that. So joining me now to talk about this and a lot more is Bank of America. It's Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO, one of the biggest banks in the world. So, yeah, so here you have... The
0: best part is throwing it to the Bank of America. <laughs> <CEO>. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so this is like the National Lampoon cover from 1973, where they have the guns of the dog's head saying, but if you don't buy this magazine, we're going to kill this dog, right? Like, why do the greedy rail workers want little Jimmy to not have Christmas gifts, this president, while he's in St. Jude's Hospital on life support. right. Right. Jimmy
0: needs his Hess truck and BB gun.
1: The framing is infuriating, right? I believe that's the BLET president, I think, is the person that they're interviewing there who's been sort of a a public face of these negotiations.
0: Why would you cripple the economy? Personally. Right. It's like, (laughs) uh, is a
1: strike worth it if you're going to bring the economy to its knees? And it's like, well, first off, that is exactly the reason why you would withhold your labor, because it is the only way weapon you have against literally the only weapon against a juggernaut like other
2: than armed rebellion. It's the only weapon you have
1: right against what is essentially a council of monopolies. These billionaires have all decided on their side that they are going to work together to essentially keep hold of their own turf and make sure that no one else can edge in. It's not like people are building or buying more rail. You know what I mean? They have control of this. And this workforce is consistently being run into the ground have been for years, record numbers of people are quitting because they just can't do it anymore. And it's the choice between getting cancer treatment or watching their children grow up or spending the rest of their lives or dying on the rails. Uh, They just don't wanna make that choice anymore. This is the important piece here. And of course the media, corporate media, spends its time villainizing workers who are very rightly in my DMs, in Max's DMs, in everyone else who has been talking to the rank and file in the last couple of days, feeling very betrayed by the Biden administration and the sort of propaganda wing that is corporate media in this country are eating this shit up and just throwing it back in the worker's face constantly. It's very deliberate.
2: Right. And of course, it's never incumbent upon the railroad management and billionaire owners, billionaire companies to be the ones to concede. Because the main sticking point here, one of the main sticking points, I know there are others, but the primary one that keeps coming up is this idea of paid sick leave, which sounds, because they don't have any, they have zero paid sick leave, and it sounds extremely reasonable to to the average person. And the railroad companies are stubbornly sticking to their guns of saying zero paid sick leave, and Again, the framing is almost never, with very rare exception, but almost never, why are these greedy corporations not just conceding on paid sick leave? Why would they destroy the economy because they want to prevent people from having paid sick leave? It's never that framing. It's why are the people seeking paid sick leave want to torpedo the economy by withholding their labor until they get the thing that they want? Mm -hmm. And um, that is, of course, never, ever how it's framed. It is always incumbent upon the striker to concede... To their own lack of dignity and basic demands. Right.
0: The robber barons are not seen as holding the economy hostage. No, never. So,
3: all right, I'm going to hop in here because I have a lot of thoughts. I'm very angry and I'm going to try to focus this and hit all these points. So the thing I want to say up front right is that covering this story right covering the crisis on the railroads as mel and i have done at the real news over the past year has been a truly gross object lesson in the role that corporate media play in laundering corporate malfeasance and in fact helping to facilitate Ongoing corporate plunder as the clip that we just played is that's like a perfect example of it But I do want to just note one more kind of preamble here Like Mel was saying because this undergirds everything Because what are we talking about here? Like the coverage that Mel and I have been doing all year is primarily long extended interviews with workers trying to kind of like build the narrative about this crisis from the grassroots up from the voices of the people who are actually making the railroads run. That's not a very sexy thing to do. It's been ignored by most other media outlets. And then when people started taking an interest in it, a lot of those mainstream media outlets started basically piggybacking off of our reporting, finding conversations contacts through our reporting, taking arguments through our reporting, and never citing us at all, right? But what we hope we have offered people is a living archive of the voices of the folks who are being run into the ground by corporate greed on the freight railroad system. We are talking about a beleaguered workforce that has been slashed dramatically over the past 40 years. The railroads used to have over 500,000 workers working on them in 1980, and over the past four decades. They have slashed and burned and gutted that workforce down to around 130. And now, the railroads are complaining about like a labor shortage and they can't hire enough people motherfucker the rail carriers the seven main rail carriers have collectively laid off or furloughed or eliminated over 30 percent of their collective workforce since 2015 alone this wasn't covid this is a deliberate corporate policy that railroaders call the cult of the operating ratio this is what happens when you financialize an essential infrastructural system like the railroads and turn it into just a sort of money making scheme and that's what they people like warren buffett have done in spades right they have cut the workforce they piled more work onto fewer workers they've made the trains longer and more dangerous and more unwieldy with fewer people operating them which puts all of us at risk you see stories of derailments with toxic chemicals leaking out of these trains these stories are happening all around you so the this is where i wanted to get right this is what what is really, really pissing me off about all of this, just like it was pissing me off in September, and I feel like I've been struggling to come up with some sort of metaphor for this infuriating symptom of our diseased discourse. But sadly, I don't have one yet. But the symptom that I'm talking about is what we're witnessing this week. The vast majority of people who didn't know or care about this problem until yesterday are suddenly very freaked out about a looming crisis on the railroads that could happen as a result of a railroad strike. What is so baffling to me and what is so sinister about what President Biden and Congress are doing right now is that if you're someone like that, if you're listening to this and you yourself are worried about what a rail strike could do to the supply chain, to cost of products, so on and so forth. I got news for you. The Biden administration just rubber stamped the plan of the very people who have already been destroying the supply chain and you are already paying for what they have done to the supply chain. The crisis is already here. It has been here. Just talk to anyone working on the railroads. We are, as I said, the, the, the staff on the railroads, the people who actually make this happen, have been just getting cut um, left and right for years, which means that you pile more work onto fewer workers, which also means that you don't have reserve workers to pick up you know, shifts if you need to mark off and take a day off. That is why you have companies like BNSF Railway or Union Pacific instituting these draconian attendance policies that essentially make it impossible for workers to take a day off without getting so severely penalized or even fired. So they go to work sick, they'll have COVID, they still go into work, their kid may be sick, they still go into work because they are so severely penalized. But that is the system that these railroads have had to create to essentially chain uh, railroad workers to their workstations because they don't have any more reserve workers to pick up the slack. They've got they've cut them all right so this is a manufactured problem on the the side of the rail carriers and yet we never talk about that we never talk about the fact that because of these policies that have you know not only just dramatically slashed the workforce but at the same time these rail carriers um, you know have been like the quality of service has been going down they've been jacking up prices on shippers because a lot of shippers have to use rail and no one's out here building new rail lines so again you have like a a mousetrap business where you can just like kind of charge as much as you want because people don't have no have nowhere else to go. And those higher costs get pushed onto you, the consumer. And so the and and all the while Uh, These corporations that run the railroads are raking in record profits. We're talking billions and billions of dollars that they are bragging about on earnings calls every goddamn quarter. And yet we're looking around and talking about a crisis that could happen if railroad workers strike and everyone, uh, including on CNN, keeps citing this this fucking, oh, it could cost $2 billion a day, up to $2 billion a day. Listen, Mira, I don't want to hear... One more fucking pundit cite that, you know, figure unless they can even muster a guess at how much the rail carriers have cost the U S economy by gutting their workforce and running the remaining workers into the ground by investing billions and billions of dollars more in stock buybacks and shareholder giveaways instead of rail maintenance. And which means that you have more dangerous railroads, more derailments, so on and so forth that they have caused by jacking up the prices on shippers, which are passed on to consumers, yada, yada, yada. So you are already paying for a, crisis that is already here. And yet the greatest trick I think that you can, that that the rail carriers ever pulled is convincing the entire corporate media ecosystem that they're somehow not involved in this. And you can see that in all the coverage. This is the last thing I'll say Then I promise I'll shut up because even in September, you saw this and you saw it now, right? It's even in that clip, there was one mention of a lockout. Everything else was rail strike, rail strike, rail strike. What is a rail strike going to do? Same thing in September. Uh, There were a few outlets that were at least being a bit more careful of saying like it could be a rail strike or it could be a rail lockout. But for the most part, it's only ever talked about as if this is a labor problem, not um, something that the rail carriers uh, could actually do, which they could. They could initiate a lockout. And why wouldn't they? Because if they know that that triggers even a a tremor in the supply chain that spooks Congress, they're gonna get the result that they're getting this week where Congress freaks out and forces a, a, a subpar deal down workers' throats.
1: Well, they already started doing that back in September, if you remember, Max. They actually started instituting, illegally ahead of time, they started slowing down their shipping and their freight. Amtrak canceled its commuter uh, service ahead of this, right? Uh, so they already started instituting what was considered at the time a soft lockout. And Marty Walsh walks into that boardroom and says, figure this shit out, and they came out with a deal like 10 hours later, you know. So, you know, they they hold this power, and the corporate media just runs with it every time, every time.
2: Yeah. So the rail workers had hundred units of dignity and material assets. And then the, the owners took away 50 of those units of dignity and material assets. And then the, then the rail workers asked for 60 and then they're viewed as being greedy. They're viewed as being as sort of, uh, holding the country hostage. And this is typically how these things work, because it's always an issue of first blood. It's always an issue of responsibility. And when you put the, when you make the responsibility for, quote unquote, shutting down the economy uh, as incumbent upon that, you know, labor, you necessarily get the, the public on the side of management, which of course is the, is the goal. So I want to, I want to, if you, if you, that was a wonderful explanation, guys. Thank you so much. I want to, I want to now pivot to the, to the political response because, you know, we, we, We try to be measured. We try to be fair. I I think we've done a really good job over the last five, six years as a show of not saying all parties are the same or whatever. I think that kind of commentary can be fairly glib. Uh, And we try to criticize Democrats uh, aggressively and and honestly uh, where where it's needed. We try to intervene where it's needed. This seems like a case where Joe Biden is pretty cynically um, operating on behalf of capital to discipline labor. In a pretty explicit way, in a way that is it, it is contra to um, the wishes of the workers, uh, and, and in doing so, he has um, <clears throat> he has um, taken a side for which there there is a very clear uh, class divide, and I think it's important that we we talk about how this is going to play out tomorrow. So w- 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 what appears to happen is that Congress is now some some progressives in Congress, uh, AOC, Bernie Sanders, the kind of usual suspects have said they're not going to support a bill that would force them back to work without some kind of concessions from the side of the unions. Now they say, uh, as this broke about an hour and a half, two hours ago, is that they're going to split it into two bills. They're going to vote to force workers back to to work, and then the second bill is going to be this this mysterious bill where they're going to vote for paid sick leave. Now, um, call me cynical, uh, but there is literally no reason to split the bill other than to make it so the second part, the good part, never happens, and B, you lose all your leverage for the first part. Yeah, it's the it's the infrastructure move. It's all the infrastructure over again. move, right? The infrastructure shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> T- tell me I'm being overly cynical. Tell me that this is not a transparent attempt to just to, to kill any paid sick leave. Which again, it's it's really it really shouldn't be Congress's job to do that anyway, because there there are other considerations, as you note know, as well. But just in, assuming for a second that the ceiling is the seven days of paid sick leave, um, this is. Never going to happen, right? This is this is we vote for the first thing to quote unquote avert the strike, which is to say discipline labor to do what we need them to do and to not al- allow them to withdraw their labor. E.g., the one thing they can actually the the actual agency they have, right? Because again, separate from armed revolt, withholding labor is all labor has. Uh, the only other option being asking nicely, which has a historically has a zero percent success rate. Um, please more porridge, right? That doesn't really work. Because then they go, eh, I don't think so. Um, so if you can, not tell us about this, the, the sort of how this may play out tomorrow. Again, I know we're speculating, but it seems like we're going to have this vote and either tomorrow or the next day. And they're going to force them back to work and the other bill is going to be separate and it's sort of probably not going to go anywhere. Is that, is that overly cynical, guys?
1: I don't think so. It makes no sense to me. But at the same time, if you attach the two, then you run the risk of not being able to pass the TA at all right. Um, and for Democrats who really don't want that strike to happen or a lockout to happen or a shutdown to happen, this is the, the way that I think that they are thinking that they can do this. You tack on the extra vote because you know that there are some Democrats who would not vote for the TA if there wasn't at least a chance to push through the sick leave because they've said so publicly. Some Republicans, including Marco Rubio, has also said that he wouldn't vote for a TA unless there was more considerations given to what the workers are asking for, which is a very transparent move on the part of the GOP, who are hoping to, you know, uh, court betrayed Dem voters, yep, um, and then do absolutely fuck all for for them for the next 364 and a half days. You know what I mean?
2: It's cynical and fake, but Biden handed it to him.
1: Exactly. Uh, this was he could have knocked this out of the park. He really could have. Um, and uh, you know, I think what we're gonna see is just this blowing up completely, you know? And I was talking to another uh, media person, Uh, he's in a group chat that I'm in, and um, he had an interesting insight that um, by splitting the vote, Pelosi can kind of uh, whip that seven days of paid sick leave and have it pass the House and then expect it to die in the Senate. So it's not gonna pass.
2: Right, they can blame the Senate, that's the goal.
1: Again, as we always fucking see, uh, you know, labor and social movements are now be you know, are used as a bargaining chip or a cudgel in, uh, you know, the not so complex when you think about it, sort of machina- machinations of Congress, right? Where certain things happen and you can just use that for what? It's just, it sucks. It sucks that this is the way that we, it's so transparent.
2: Because literally, why else would you split it other than to make sure it dies? Like, th- exactly. there's, there's literally no other reason to do it other than to... Other than to create a a theater where Congress or members of Congress can kind of vote for it to show nominal support, but not actually have it have any teeth. Like, well, who goes? You don't go into negotiation taking your single piece of leverage and then say, "Here, please take my leverage." Now let's negotiate, motherfucker.
3: Well, and like that's, I mean, I think it's a, a yeah, really important point because I want people to consider the larger implications of this, right? Um, like, I have a. a Uh, Extended, you know, interview segment on breaking points coming out this week with two Starbucks workers, where we talk about the fact that it's like, look, you may not think that Starbucks workers are quote unquote real workers because they're Gen Z, because they're women, they're queer, they're non-binary, or because they're service workers, but I guarantee fucking to you that if even if you work in like a, a, a burly manly man industry, your boss is looking at what Starbucks is doing, and if they get away with their scorched earth flagrantly breaking the law violating workers rights to squash this unionization effort if they succeed in doing that that will continue to be the playbook for every employer in this goddamn country so if you don't care about it that's you're being you know you're you're really shooting yourself in the dick there i'm sorry to say so let's
2: so let's talk about the issue of precedent because people have noted how this how there's a there's a potential ups strike uh next year and there could be a similar effort to frame it as an infrastructure and in you similar tactics that people are worried about that, that, that this, you know, again, Mr. The greatest labor president ever is that, that this could have ramifications for other parts of the labor sector as well.
3: Well, and especially when it comes to, to infrastructure, or right? when it comes to other um, workers who's uh, uh, who, Labor relations for whom are governed by the Railway Labor Act. Right. This is like uh, also like we we, we talked about um, like airline workers. Right. You know, falling under this uh, purview as well. Right. And that became an issue during the government shutdown a few years back, so on and so forth. But um, like like here's here's the, the, the point that I, that I was making. Right. Is what I want people to understand. What I need people to understand is that this entire drawn out process that Mel laid out in the beginning, right? Let's remember wor- these workers have gone without a new contract for three years, right? And so there's so much, I mean, there's so many other nitpicky like media criticism points that I have written down that we just don't have time to get into. But like one of those is the fact that every corporate media outlet is like, oh, this is a historic wage increase, you know, for these workers of like over 20%. What they don't tell you is that these workers have not had a wage increase for three years. And so, you know, that inflates, you know, the size of the increase. It also doesn't account for inflation. It also doesn't account for the amount of those costs that are, or that those wage gains that are going to be offset by increased healthcare costs, right? There's so much stuff that is hidden behind the ways that corporate media has covered this. And this is what workers have been screaming about. And I'm so sorry to all of them. I just want to say to every railroad worker who's listen, like we have tried to help get your message out and I don't think that we have accomplished it. And I. know that corporate media has failed you and I've seen how much that failure hurts. And I hope that all of us take this as a sort of, you know, call to arms to be better about this, be more vigilant about this, because then we, then we may not end up in situations like we're in now because the, the, the long roundabout point that I'm getting to is that the rail carriers were always banking on this result. That is why they have bargained in bad faith for over two years. That is why they have refused to budge on, you know, the most sensible requests or or demands from the labor side because they knew that this whole process was gonna kick in. They expected that the chances are we won't even make it to a strike or a lockout deadline. Chances are, you know, people will get tired, they'll get worn out, they'll just wanna go back to work, they'll take the wage increase and this will all be over. But if we end up on that cliff, Our ace in the hole, our, uh, the, 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 Trump card that we've got in our back pocket is we are banking on the president and Congress doing what they did back in 1992, uh, 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 you know, just flipping over the chessboard, ramming a deal down workers' throats in a back-to-work order, and the rail carriers essentially get what they want. When, Like you said, Adam, when you have that in your corner, what incentive do you have to actually bargain in good faith? What incentive? And also, what what was the point of having members vote? (laughs) What, What was the point of having members vote? And again, like, what are they asking for, right? There's every worker that Mel and I have talked to have all said the same thing. This isn't about money. Like, yeah, it's good that we're getting, you know, paid, you know, fairly for the the, the work that we do. It's very tough work. It's very hard work. Um, you know, it takes us away from our families, yada, yada, yada. But everything that they keep telling us is like, this is about quality of life. We have none. We don't get to see our family anymore. Rail, Like w- the media was just like celebrating Warren Buffett, who is the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, which owns BNS R- F- SF Railway. They were just touting you know, or celebrating Buffett earlier this week saying, oh, he, he's given $750 million uh, of his own money away to these like charities. Warren Buffett owns BNSF Railway, like I said, where workers are dying of heart attacks on the job because they can't go to a medical appointment because they have no paid sick leave. And that's the the, the last point I want to end on because this is the question that you asked. It's not about money for the rail carriers either. Again, they're making record profits. They are raking it in. They have turned the rail system into just a cash machine. It is not about money for them. The the amount of money it would cost them to give workers 7 or 15 paid sick days is minuscule in the grand scheme of things, um compared to the profits that they're that they're generating. It's about control. It's about control because um and you know, if you Like it would force these rail carriers to, you know, change their profit maximizing scheme, even just in the slightest. You know, I won't rehash what I said earlier. But again, like this is their model to cut the workforce down to the barest minimum and then shackle these workers to their workstations because you have no more reserves and, and implement draconian attendance policies. So everyone is heavily penalized if they take a day off. That is a form of worker control that you have that they do not want to relinquish even though financially they absolutely could and again this whole thing what everyone should be so furious about is that this three-year process that most people didn't care about until yesterday has been undergirded by that sense from the rail carriers that they have the Biden administration or any administration. This isn't just Democrats or Republicans. Republicans would do the same goddamn thing. It was Republican senators, I believe, in September who were the ones saying, we need to force these workers back to work. And Biden, to his credit, actually like tried to get Marty Walsh and Buttigieg and everyone to like come up with a better deal. Republicans were ready to to sell workers out then so i don't buy any of this bullshit that the republicans are the class of the working man like this is a bipartisan tradition the the de- demolition of the rail system uh at the behest of you know the, the the greedy corporate oligarchs who own them that has been aided and abetted by democrats and republicans for decades and so it's just it's a really dismal situation in- and this
2: is very much about sending a message to airline workers to other infrastructure to court infrastructure workers to the postal service, right? There's there seems like there's very much like here's the line, you you can't cross this line because once you do, it's it's a slippery slope. Because again, they see what's happening in Amazon's, so they see what's happening in Starbucks, and they see what's happening in Apple stores. Like there there is a movement that needs to be. That needs to have its legs chopped off. They need to be taken down a
0: notch. And they know that they have an ally in the Biden administration.
1: They do. Yeah. Well, and the Biden administration, well, it's, you know, it's a the party of Democrats. Um, they punted back in September because they needed to get past midterm elections. And they know. need
2: labor. One that. thing
1: that's really notable here is that the Biden administration was noticeably quiet in the run up to the last the end of the last cooling off period, they really didn't have any, you know, much to say beyond we leave this up to the folks negotiating. You know, we trust that they will come to an agreement. Let's hope they do. It was very neutral language from the Biden administration, if I'm remembering correctly. They really didn't say anything. It wasn't until the last, you know, literally down to the wire last. 24 hours or so that they were pushing Marty Walsh into those boardrooms and trying to find a way to get these two sides to come to some sort of agreement because it was, politically a total powder keg at the time right midterm elections are on the horizon you try and do this legislation ahead of midterms you piss off a portion of your electorate they don't vote you back into your seats you lose control of yada 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 right so they punted to the other side of midterms and now they feel like they can you know step in it's not even december yet right this deadline was it was december 9th this came out on the 28th of november and, you know, you see this on Facebook, in my Twitter DMs, in, you know, other journalists' Twitter mentions, all these things where these workers are like, what the fuck, man? They they sold us out fucking 12 days before, you know, two, almost two weeks before this was coming down to the wire. We could have used this leverage at some point in the next 10 days to say, hey, clock's ticking. Let's figure this out. You know what I mean? And the Biden administration and Craven, as they are, know that, you know... Uh, Again, it really is a bipartisan effort here. When the wagon starts circling around capital, man, the class distinction in terms of political parties disappears, right? It's about ruling class versus working class. This is down-home American class warfare, 100%, right? And. And the the sort of political, uh, you know, power plays that are happening now in Congress are just transparent as fuck. And, um, you know, I don't think that very many in terms of rank and filers are looking at this and saying anything other than what it is you know.
3: And I just, like, I wanted to, to to kind of leave people, you know, building on Mel's rousing speech, just like, give people, like, a sense of, like, okay, what is to be done? Right? You know, what do we do now when this is what we're up against? Because, yeah, what Mel and I are hearing is people are very demoralized. They feel very betrayed. We can't just let that all evaporate into nothing, into apathy, into resignation. We mm-hmm. have to assess the situation for what it is, and we need to act accordingly. And what I would say to, to Adam's point, um, you know, about Like, needing to kind of, you know, be be sober and and fair about, you know, who we're criticizing here. I already said, like, I don't buy any goddamn Republican would do anything different. In fact, I know they would do worse. I already have low expectations for Republicans. That's the Democrats' problem, right? People have just a slightly higher expectation and they still manage to let us down. But I would say to anyone who is genuinely, like, concerned about the Democrats retaining, like, governmental power now and in the future, right? They are demolishing the faith that you know workers in the labor movement have in them and that's a serious crisis because this is also something i hear not just on the railroads like You know, the reason that so many workers unionized and non unionized have just lost faith uh, entirely in the Democrats is because this is par for the course. I know that there are people out there, even smart people who are saying like, "Okay, yeah, this is bad. But, you know, we still got to acknowledge that Biden is the most pro union president in blah, 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 (laughs) blah, whatever. What I want you to understand is that unions, uh, you know, union members and workers at Remember shit. Right. They have a long memory. They know that Obama campaigned on passing the Employee Free Choice Act. And then he immediately reneged on that when when they got him in to office. Right. They remember how Obama did nothing and sat on his goddamn hands while Scott Walker in Wisconsin was taking a battering ram to Wisconsin Wisconsin. Uh, public sector workers and ramming through Act 10 and turning Wisconsin into a right-to-work state a few years later. The Democrats did nothing at the national level to stop that. The PRO Act has just been sitting on the Senate floor and hasn't moved an inch, even though it would be a seismic change in labor relations in this country. Democrats have not made that a priority, and a lot of people who canvassed hard and voted hard for them in the hopes that they would are now left spurned. But on top of that, if we're looking around at like this grassroots and Energy that is coming from Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, Chipotle workers, Trader Joe's workers, and so on and so forth. The Democrats are also hamstringing us there, as are the Republicans. Republicans have made it a point to basically fight to block the uh, uh our ability to raise the budget for the National Labor Relations Board. And thus the budget for the National Labor Relations Board hasn't been raised in I think like nine years. And now when we have an actual fighting NLRB more so than we've had in my lifetime. Yeah,
2: to, just to intervene real quick, that is that is like the one thing Biden has done that is pro labor. I, w- I wanna be fair here. Like the NLRB is measurably better than it was with Trump.
1: Yeah, he made some good appointments, but now you know the budget is is not enough. Yeah, they're right?
2: they're saying they're
3: gonna have to lay furlough people because they can't keep up with all the unfair labor practice charges and all, all the new union election filings. So like, yeah, it's great that we've got a Bruzo in there now. Now they need the people to actually do their job. So there are things that people can fight for. I'm the, I'm the editor in chief of a nonprofit. I can't tell people what to have, what to fight for or whatnot. But these are clear ways that, you know, we can assess the situation and that Democrats could actually, you know, make good on their promises if they cared as much as they said they do on the Campaign trail.
1: Well, and just how to, th- you know, the thought here, the phrase, you know, uh, if we give them an inch, they'll take a mile goes both ways, right? Uh clearly, the labor movement currently, as it stands, with you know, the highest amount of of successful uh union elections and unprecedented levels of grassroots labor organizing in sectors that generally haven't had unions, like with Amazon, like with Starbucks, right? Has the capitalist class running scared right and to max's point about you know this being about control and about power um you know th- workers have an amazing amount of power Right. And this is one of the most transparent ways that we are seeing the capitalist class uh, and aided and abetted by, you know, an ostensibly, uh, you know, partisan government um, and by corporate media as it's sort of propaganda wing, whether they want to admit it or not. Right. They are doing everything in their power to make sure that workers don't realize that. Right. And don't, you know, actually take a hold of that. Um, And it's uh it's just i'm to to talk more about just like the actionable sort of ways in which we can see this as a moment of of not you know digging our heels in really uh, as members of the working class and to sort of see uh, the ways in which um you know try to 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 bolster this feeling of solidarity um it's going to be a difficult sort of road right because Max is right. The working class, in terms of union and labor, and just bodies on the ground, people, you know, door knocking for candidates folks are out right now trying to make sure that the Georgia runoff goes in, in a, a good direction, right? Um, they're going to see all of the hard work that they put into this for these candidates, and routinely these candidates are sending them up shit creek, right? Um, eventually they're just going to stop even caring about it.
2: Right. Well, that's what makes the splitting the bill so cynical, because it provides this kind of, mm-hmm. you, know, you can technically say, I voted for this, but if you're not willing to use it as leverage, then what the fuck is the vote mean? It's, it's, it's totally symbolic because it's not going to pass.
0: Yeah. And just to kind of hammer the point home about the fact that this is not about money, right? This is like, like so much, I I think of the, of the, of the framework that we've seen, um, from obviously the, you know, corporations, but also from, uh, the, the media, certain politicians talking about this issue, when it even rises to that level, but is, you know, oh, well, there are all these increased costs, right? There are all these increased costs, which is why we need to negotiate. We need to do this. We need to do that. Um, you know, uh, paid sick leave is going to, you know, devastate whatever, whatever kind of uh, profits, you know, these, these companies are making. And Max, you you referenced this, this earlier. There are publicly available earnings calls um, from the CEOs of, these companies, I mean, across all industries, but I mean, you can, you can like, you can literally read this shit. And, you know, so for example, just this past October, uh, just about a month ago, Jennifer Hammond, the executive vice president and CFO of union Pacific said on the earnings calls, meaning like for shareholders to know that they're making money, that despite, um, labor cost increases, uh this past year of $114 million for Union Pacific, right? Ooh, that's a big number, $114 million. She said this, quote, year to date, shareholders have received $7.9 billion through dividends and share repurchases, end quote. And then you have another call from earlier this year, uh in in July of 2022, uh, from James Foote, the president, CEO, and director of CSX, which is a freight rail company, um basically like lamenting uh that you know oh they're trying to do what they you know can for uh for for their workers but it's but it's really hard even though uh again billions of dollars in income in profit is being made uh despite you know a couple hundred million dollars in uh cost increases but James Foote, the again the, the president of CSX said this on an earnings call back in July quote we're working on a unionized environment, and we're not able to do much without an agreement from the unions, including increasing their pay, but we have tried many options And we'll continue to do whatever we can to try to change the working environment so that people feel like they really want to work here. Simple as that. So it's an ongoing process like everything is. And so we don't have any silver bullets. We're making it up to a large degree as we go along. End quote. And he said this later on the same call, quote, the labor market is tight. uh, Sorry, quote, the labor market is tight. Prospective recruits have many job options, and the pandemic has had a profound effect on employees' work and lifestyle preferences. Oh fuck off. <laughs> Our hiring process has been steady but slow. End quote. So I, I just wanted to put put those quotes from the fucking like leaders at these uh railroad companies. Um like in in the record of, of of our conversation, and you know, if there is, I'm glad you kind of responded that way, Max, to to uh, to that one line. I think the idea that you know the 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 president and CEO of uh, CSX would on the earnings call lament, you know, the profound effect on employees' work and lifestyle preferences. Due to the pandemic uh, speaks volumes, this idea that, oh, well, you know, now, you know, now I guess conductors just want to work remote, (laughs) you know, like, what the fuck are we talking about here? (laughs) And like,
3: I I mean, it's you should people listening. I hope that you were as angry as we are, and I hope that we've like at least been coherent through our rage. But this is such an infuriating situation for the reasons you just pointed out, Nima. I mean, Union Pacific. In twenty twenty one had its most profitable year ever and its sites increasing fees right again I mentioned that these these rate these freight rail carriers are they're not competitive they have an oligopolistic non-competitive cartel where the seven different major rail carriers have like their territory on the rail lines no one's building new uh rail lines to compete with them so they can just keep jacking up fees and and uh, on shippers and so on and so forth that's partially where their profits are coming from the other part is from you know cut quote-unquote cutting operating ratio that's what we've been talking about now so slashing the workforce, piling more work onto fewer workers, investing, uh, not investing in rail maintenance, and then acting surprised when you start getting a bunch of derailments because the trains are too long, the tracks aren't um, being upkept, and the workers are delirious because they haven't slept in three goddamn days. Just another thing to add to what you said, Nima. Surface Transportation Board Chairman Martin Oberman has estimated that since 2010, the Class 1 rail carriers have spent 46 billion dollars more more on stock buybacks and shareholder dividends than they have spent investing in railroad maintenance and all of us are at hazard because of this i beg people go listen to the workers that mel and i have talked to at the real news on my podcast working people listen to the pain and frustration in their voice these are the people who are being run into the ground and it's the rail carriers who have been causing this crisis through their greedy practices, and now everyone is talking about how we "quote unquote" averted a rail strike. We didn't avert shit. Workers just had their strike preemptively broken by POTUS, and all the while, the crisis that is already here and the people who have been, uh, uh you know, at at the wheel driving that crisis through their greedy practices, just got a big thumbs up from the government saying, "Keep doing what you're doing. Doesn't matter what happens." to the workers and that is bad news for workers and all of us
0: well i think that is uh an excellent place to leave it thank you mel and max for uh joining us on this uh real news network citations needed crossover event to discuss clearly the most uh pro-Pinkerton president of late. And, you know, if anything else, I think what's going on right now really makes singing uh, I've Been Working on the Railroad All the Live Long Day sound a lot more sinister um, than just a childhood song. So uh, thank you again. Uh, We've been joined by Mel Buer, researcher, educator, journalist, and editor at The Real News Network. Mel is currently writing a book on radical media for Or Books. And we have also been joined by Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, former editor of The Chronicle Review and host of The Working People podcast. His book, The Work of Living, was published by Or Books earlier this year. Mel and Max, thank you so much again for joining us on Citations Needed.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, guys. And that will do it for this Citations Needed News Brief. Please join us soon for more full-length episodes. Uh, But until then, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CitationsPod, Facebook, Citations Needed. And if you are so inclined, become a supporter of the show through Patreon.com slash Citations Needed. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. But that will do it for this News Brief. We will catch you on the next full-length episode soon. But until then, I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Thank you again for listening to Citations. Either our senior producer is Florence burrow Adams, our producer is Julianne Tweet, and production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano Transcriptions are by Morgan McAdams. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again, everyone. We'll catch you next time.